we go. All right, we are in Luke chapter 7. If you want to make your way there this morning, we're going to begin in verse 24 here in a moment. Um, I, I'm excited to celebrate this summer. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to be next week, some point in time. Um, I don't have the exact date, but um, starting sometime in June, I'm going to be celebrating 22 years of being in the ministry. And um, it is a great accomplishment. It wasn't always easy. There were some things uh, that almost stumbled me out of the ministry, but God has been faithful and God has continued to guide and lead me. And I bring that up to go to this point. <clears throat> in that time, I would say it wasn't until I was about 25, 27, my mid to late 20s, where I finally began to understand what the church was and what the church is. And so that means for about five to seven years of being in the ministry in the church, I did not have an understanding of what the bride of Christ was meant to be, what the, the body was, what it was when the gathering of God's people came together to form the church. Because, you know, I, I grew up in church. I would say I spent, I've spent 43 years in church. And that's not because I'm 43 yet, but because I'm counting the time I was in my mother's womb. And, and in that time, I had this misunderstanding of what church was. Uh, and maybe you have this too. It was this idea of this is a place where you go on Sundays, sometimes Wednesdays. It's a place where people gather together and uh, we sing some songs. Uh, when I was growing up, it was songs I wouldn't regularly sing in the rest of the week, but it's songs that we sing together for some reason here at church. We, we throw money into an offering plate. When I was growing up, it was like a little wooden hat that they passed around, and you put money in the offering plate, and, and I knew people would do that for some reason. I didn't really understand why people did that, and they called it the tithes or the offerings. It was a time where people would give you instructions and you would follow. You would listen. They would tell you to stand up, and you'd stand up. They'd tell you to sit down, you'd sit down. You, they would say, hey, let's pray, or let's bow our heads in prayer. And what would we do? Bow our heads in prayer. We didn't even then say, Simon says, right? We would just do it. We, we knew what we were supposed to do. It was a time for me where you would stare at a guy who got on the stage. He had a title of a preacher, and you would listen to him talk. And maybe you would hear a couple things, but it was just kind of this, this thing. And for me, I'll be honest, growing up in the church, even though my dad was the pastor, there was a time I would kind of zone out. Um, I, would just, I would see his mouth moving. I would hear noise coming from it, but I didn't really take anything into it. And like I said, it, it was a time where I didn't understand the situation of the church. I didn't understand the body. I didn't understand the tithe. I didn't understand the Word of God. I didn't even understand fully what it meant for me to be a believer and be a part of the church. And I bring it up because that's going to be our focus this morning in understanding the situation. And Jesus is going to point out in our passage, there is a danger if we do not understand the situation. Again, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, and we're going to run through verse 35 this morning. Our goal is not just to understand the passage, but to understand the situation to which we live in in this moment, in the situation of God's Word, the situation of what we are supposed to be doing as God's people. And we're going to tackle this with three questions, and here are the questions, well, four questions, but three I'm going to give you right now. So here are the three questions. Why did you come? How did you respond? How did you change? So let's read our passage and we'll tackle these. And the word of the Lord says, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those are dressed in splendid clothing are, are, and live in luxury or in king's courts. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you want us to have good things stored up in our heart, good things that we receive from you, and good things that we can produce in this world so that other people know that we belong to you. And Lord, we know that your word is recording of your voice for our teaching, for our instruction, our rebuking, correcting, for our training of righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why I pray in this moment your spirit would just speak to all of our hearts. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would allow our hearts to be transformed by you, that this would not just be another Sunday that we have come to church, but, Lord, that we know we have been in your presence, for your word says where two or more are gathered, we are in your presence, and that is a promise. And so we thank you for that promise, that gift of grace and mercy that you've allowed us to enjoy in this time. Lord, we just pray that your will and your kingdom be done in this time. Your spirit would fall upon us. You would allow us to see things we haven't seen before. Allow us to hear things we haven't heard before that we again may be transformed more into your likeness and no longer conforming to this world. We ask you to forgive us where we failed you. And we ask you to guide us as our shepherd. We pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, to gain a little context about what is going on here, if you're visiting with us this morning or you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, the gathering of people in verse 24, it says Jesus began to speak to the crowds. We can know that is expanded into a much larger crowd from Luke chapter 6, verse 17, where it says a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people came from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, within this crowd... We have tax collectors, we have sinners, we have individuals who have felt far off from God, we have Pharisees, we have lawyers. By the way, lawyers in verse 30 speaks of experts in the law. Most likely this is Luke pointing to the scribes, which Matthew points out regularly throughout his gospel. So we have this interesting group that has gathered as the crowds listening to Jesus' teaching, listening to what he's saying about John, listening to what he's presenting to them and trying to direct them to. It's a very diverse group. And it's two groups that are on two completely different spiritual paths. Yet we see here in Luke 6 and Luke 7 that Jesus gives each group of people an opportunity to know him through his teaching. See, we've got to understand that Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. 
but we can only be saved through His terms, not ours. Now, the messengers of John we read there in verse 24 is what we looked at last week concerning verses 18 20 through 23 when John sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask two questions about something he was struggling with concerning who Jesus was. And now they have now returned to John with his answers. Jesus has given the answer, pointing back to the prophecies in the Old Testament. And he turns now his attention back to the crowds where he was in Luke chapter 6. And he asked them three questions. Do you notice that? Verse 24, verse 25, and 26. What did you go out to see? Verse 24, he, also, he obviously implies in the wilderness. The first two questions in verse 24 and 25 are given a negative answer. Again, we find Jesus using this teaching technique of using a rhetorical question to the crowds. He's not wanting anyone to pipe up and answer it. He's wanting these questions to cause them to think, to ponder about, okay, what did I go out there to see? What was I looking for? In the simplest terms, Jesus is asking all who are listening, what were you going there expecting? What were your intentions? Verse 24 says, were you looking for a reed? Shaken by the wind. And that can carry two meanings. A reed or tall grass was a common feature that could be found in the desert. It was something that we found, desert means in the wilderness, in a desolate area, in a place that is out of your way. Jesus begins a rhetorical question. He's saying, you don't go to the desert to look for something that is ordinary or something that is common. No one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, why don't we go a long distance by foot and find a piece of grass? And since we know from t- verses 29 and 30, there are individuals in this crowd who have gone out to see John, and they would have heard this question, and they would have agreed. No, Jesus, we did not go out into the wilderness to look for grass. Another understanding is the reed was susceptible to the forces of the wind, making it weak. And Jesus, but they didn't have the strength to stand upon its own. With this understanding, Jesus is pointing to the strength of John and his message. He's asking the crowd, maybe, did you go out to see something weak? Did you go out to see something to be shaped and forced by things around him? And they would have said, no. That is not what we saw in John the Baptist. We saw a preacher and a prophet who is bold. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, he was so bold. That is why now John is in prison. Because he spoke out about Herod and Herodias and their adulterous marriage. Coming to the second rhetorical question in verse 25. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see someone dressed in soft clothing? That word soft could also be read as fine or expensive. Though the Gospel of Luke never mentions what John's wardrobe is like because we have the other Gospel. The Gospel of Mark tells us that John was clothed in camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. So again, the obvious answer for the crowds who went out to see John would have been no. John was not dressed in such a way that you would consider him to be in a king's court or a royal palace. John was a rugged man. He was an outdoors man. He was born under, under a Nazarite vow. So when you think of John the Baptist, you should picture a long beard. You should picture long hairs, mo- most likely in dreads. I imagine if someone like John showed up in churches today, there would be people who would be taken aback and be casting judgment. If John wasn't in the Jordan River so much baptizing, he most likely have been very dirty. And Jesus moves then to the third question in verse 26. 
What then did you go out to see? This question ends with the positive, unlike the previous two. Again, Jesus isn't allowing the crowds to answer. It's a rhetorical question. But with a combination of these three questions, this is the statement that Jesus is wanting to be understood. You did not go into the wilderness to see something common or frail. You did not go out there to see a sharp-dressed man. You did not go out there for any other reason except that you heard that there was a prophet preaching in the wilderness, and you have not seen a prophet for 400-plus years. Then Jesus says concerning John about being a prophet is that he was more than a prophet. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament was someone who spoke the Word of God to God's people, calling them back to the covenantal relationship that was established in Abraham, that was given direction through the law that Moses gave to the people. But John was more than a prophet because he was speaking on behalf of God, pointing people to a new covenant which would come from Abraham by Jesus Christ, whom Jesus fulfilled the law of God that was given by Moses and would usher in a new means of adoption for all God's people to become the covenantal family. John was more than a prophet because he was the forerunner of the Messiah. This is what Jesus is pointing to when he quotes Malachi 3.1 in verse 27. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. If you don't know, Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. So we have two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Malachi is the very last book. It is a book of oracles, which means a book of burdens. In the book of Malachi, God speaks through the prophet Malachi to his people to reveal burdens that he has upon his people. And in this particular context, it begins in chapter 2, verse 17, where the Lord reveals to his covenantal people, I am wearied with you. I am worn out by you, is what that means. You make me tired. You make me sleepy. You make me drowsy. You make me unsure. And the reason God was so weary is because the people of God had proclaimed that evil and sinfulness was good in the sight of the Lord. So they came to this conclusion, since they were practicing evil, since they were practicing sinfulness, and the Lord had not brought his judgment and justice upon it, then it must be okay with God. And so they continued to practice it. And the burden that God reveals is that the people are beginning to look the other way from righteousness to wickedness from what is holy to what is sinful, and they're saying that this is okay. This is okay. We can do this. In other words, they're looking the other way. They're sliding things under the rug. We're just not going to deal with that because obviously God's not saying anything about it. It's kind of like how people today say, well, you know, I know it's a sin, but once saved, always saved, right? Or say, I know it's a sin, but I've been saved by grace, and I'm covered by God's grace. It's from this place this way of living, that God makes the statement that we have here in verse 27 of Luke chapter 7. It comes from Malachi 3.1. The statement is concerning the forerunner of the Messiah who will purify the people and bring judgment on their sin and on those who do not fear the Lord. What Jesus is doing here with this statement, with this prophecy, is revealing John's identity not just as a prophet, but as more than a prophet, because he, in fact, fulfilled the prophecy. And then he was pointing the people to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord who was now here in Jesus Christ. 
And so the question that Jesus is posing through these three rhetoricals in verse 24 through 27 is, why did you go? What were you expecting to see? How this applies to us is our first question. Why did you come? Don't mishear me. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> It'd be very awkward if I was the only one here preaching and no one was sitting in the chairs. We, we did that before with video, and I don't want to do that ever again. But why are you here? What are your intentions for being here this morning? When you walked through the door, when you drove to church, when you got yourself dressed, when you woke up out of bed and you knew this was Sunday and this is the day I'm going to church, what were you expecting to happen? Anything? The same old, same old? We're going to sing a few songs. It's usually three or four. We're going to listen to the preacher Maybe just stare at him. I'm going to make sure no one sits in my seat. You know you all sign your own seats. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I'm going to show up because I'm going to make an appearance because I don't want people calling or texting or emailing or whatever, asking if I'm okay. I'm just going to make sure I'm there so I don't get those sort of things. Or, or, did you come to hear a word from the Lord? Did you come here expecting to hear God speak to you directly? Did you come here to be with your eternal family, to worship our risen Lord and Savior? Did you come here with the intention and the expectation, you know what, I'm going to be able to grow in my relationship with God in a matter of minutes and about an hour did you come knowing that when I gather with two or more of God's people, it doesn't have to be hundreds, it doesn't have to be thousands, two or more of God's people, that I come in the promise of Jesus Christ, that I am in his presence? Did we come with that expectation? Did we come with the expectation that it wasn't a preacher that was going to speak to you, but God himself, my creator, the God who loves me and will judge me, my creator is going to speak to me directly. Did you come here with a, with a longing that I want to worship the greatness of who he is, his holiness. I want to lift him up and I want to tune my heart to sing his praise. See, when Jesus asked this question three times, what then did you go out to see? He's asking us the very same question. What did you come here expecting? What did you come here expecting to happen? And here's what I've learned about church. Every time we gather, every time we gather, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday nights or in your small groups, when we gather with other believers, we should have an expectation that we are going to grow in our relationship with God and we're going to grow in our relationship with one another. We should have an expectation when we walk through those doors and we come into the presence of God's people knowing we're in the presence of Jesus Christ himself, we should have the expectation that we are not going to be the same person we were when we leave this place. That God is going to do a great and good and mighty work in our lives that is going to transform us even if we didn't know we needed it. 
Students who are going to camp, listen here for a second. All students who are in this room are going to camp. I want to challenge you in this moment to begin praying and thinking on and writing on and meditating on this question. What are you expecting when you go to camp? Are you expecting to go and play some games? Are you expecting to go and just hang out with friends? Are you expecting... Are you expecting to go and gain a deeper understanding of who God is and who you are in Him? That should be your expectation. I know you're going to have fun. I know you're going to get tired. I know you're going to eat blessed cafeteria food. But you should expect God to invade your life in that week. That's the only reason I asked Jason, our youth pastor, to take you all to camp. It's for God to invade your life and to transform you. And we adults should have the same expectation when we come to church every Sunday. It doesn't have to be at a conference. It doesn't have to be at camp. It doesn't have to be anywhere else. When we come into the presence of God, we should expect God to invade our lives and transform us more into his likeness. What are you expecting? I believe if we come with no expectations, then we can probably expect nothing to happen and nothing to change. We just go through the motions. We can check in and check out. And believe me, I did that for a long period of life in my, in my time and growing up in church. And ended up walking away from God for a while. I'm not saying that God can't shake us. I'm not saying God can't wake us from that spiritual slumber. But we should come with an expectation. When we come here, we find our seed. I want to encourage you to start praying. Pray for your heart, God. Prepare me to worship you, not just to sing songs or to clap or to enjoy that song or whatever. God, prepare my heart to worship you. We should come with an expectation of worshiping God. And I say that because I know our worship team is faithful every single Sunday to pray for everyone that's going to be here to come with that expectation. That they're not coming to a show. They're not coming to hear music. They're coming to worship the great and mighty God. We should come to church expecting that we're going to hear from God. I want you to know that's what I pray for you every single week and every single Sunday morning when I wake up. That you wouldn't come here to hear a preacher that's filling a certain time period with that's 30 to 40 minutes, but you're coming to hear from God. Because you just come to hear from me, it's going to be, it's going, there's nothing going to be there. I do not have the wisdom to change your life. I do not have the power, but he does. And so we come with the expectation, God, what do you want to say to me? through the instrument that you use behind the pulpit. Coming back to our passage, Jesus expands on who John is. Look in verse 28. So I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. What that means is all who have ever lived do not compare to the greatness of who John is. There's no human being greater and keep in mind, Jesus is not saying this to build up John's self-esteem. The, the messengers of John have already gone in verse 24. What Jesus is doing, he's pointing to John's role in divine and eternal plan of salvation. See, John's greatness wasn't in who he was. John's greatness was in the position he fulfilled. John also understood that he wasn't the greatest. He told his own disciples in John 3.30, He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Now, it is at this point in Matthew's recording of this event, which is in Matthew 11, 2 through 19. 
Matthew inserts a lesson that Jesus taught that Luke does not put in there. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, says, From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, why Luke doesn't insert this, we will have to wait when we see him in heaven, and we can ask him then, hey, Luke, why would you leave that out? But Luke's main focus in recording this event is how the people responded to what Jesus was saying about John. What Jesus is saying about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew is that the kingdom of heaven has always suffered violence. There has always been people that have been opposed to God's will and God's kingdom coming in life. Luke does this indirectly concerning the Pharisees and the lawyers there in verse 12. But, or not verse 12, sorry. Luke does this indirectly concerning the Pharisees and lawyers, but because they're not submitting to the will of God. They're not submitting to his plan. Instead of submitting to the purpose and plan of God, they want to take it by force, which eventually they're going to do when they have Jesus Christ crucified. Now, Luke is going to record something similar to what Matthew records, but he's going to do it later in chapter 16 when he writes, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easy for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, the mentioning of Matthew in Matthew chapter 11, again, points to a prophecy from the book of Malachi chapter 4, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Matthew is reiterating that John was this image or figure as Elijah. Now, Luke doesn't mention it because we can have that question. Why did Luke skip such a big point? Because Luke has already stated it earlier in his gospel in Luke chapter 1. He wrote, He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord and be and a people prepared. Luke has already stated that John is fulfilling the role of Elijah, so he doesn't have to restate it again. Again, the whole point of verses 28 through 30 in Luke chapter 7 is how did the people respond to not only what Jesus says concerning John, but also how did they respond to John's ministry, which is what is meant in verse 28. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. It's speaking not only to the crowd in this day that Jesus is speaking, but it's speaking to us today. So we have to ask, how can someone be greater than the one Jesus says is the greatest that ever came from a woman? Well, we have to realize what John did not experience. John never experienced the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John never experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit by all those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. So now we understand that we are the least that Jesus is speaking of. We are the weakest, but now that we have faith in Christ alone, he has changed our identity. What is interesting about the response of the people in verses 29 and 30, it's a huge reversal of what we might think should happen. Do you notice it's the religious elite that are now on the outside. They have been opposed to the purpose and the plan of God while the tax collectors and the sinners are now on the inside. They're praising, declaring, and acknowledging God's purpose to be just. That word just means to be read as righteous or right. 
What Jesus is saying, by their acceptance of the message and the baptism of John, they were validating God's plan of salvation. One commentator writes, for the Pharisees and law experts, such a message was received with hostility. Others might need to repent, but they were confident in their own righteousness. But for those who knew they were sinners and needed to repent for their tax collectors and sinners, the good news of John and Jesus offered hope and forgiveness, and it was gladly accepted. They saw the ministries of Jesus and John as evidence of the arrival of the messianic age. So this brings us to our second question this morning. How do we respond to the word and will of God? When we hear God's word, when we hear his purpose for our life, when we hear his plan, do we align ourselves with it or do we go about as business as usual? When the Holy Spirit falls upon us as we gather as God's people to form the church and the Holy Spirit comes upon us and convicts us, do we respond in such a way that the Holy Spirit is leading us to respond? Being in the ministry so long, I've heard numerous times someone come up to me and say, Oh, Pastor, you were stepping all over my toes this morning. And I understand what is being said by that. I get the saying. But here's the thing I want us to understand as God's people. God is never aiming for your toes. He's never aiming for your toes. He's after your heart. He's after your mind. He's after your soul. And he's after your strength. Because that's the way he wants us to love him. And that's what he wants to transform us. But here's the thing, even if you were to say, oh man, you're stepping all over my toes this morning, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? Is anything that is going to be changed that was stepped on? That's what Jesus is bringing out here when he talks about John and greater and the least. And it brings us to our final verses, beginning in verse 31. Again, rhetorical question. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a drunk, a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This final thing here in our verses this morning is no doubt directed towards the Pharisees and these lawyers, these teachers of the law, but also the people in the crowds that were living their life exactly like them. And just going through the motions. And maybe, maybe this morning, the Holy Spirit is directing at some of us here that are just going through the motions. Final question is, how do we apply it? The image of verse 32 is of children playing in a marketplace. They're playing a game. And one set of children begin playing a flute, hoping the other children begin to dance. This image of playing a flute is is an image of celebration. It's an image of a wedding. But they wouldn't dance, so they changed the game. All right, you're not going to dance if we play merry songs, so we're going to sing a dirge. The word dirge could be read as lament, a sad song. We're going to sing songs that belong at funerals, and maybe you'll weep, and maybe you'll cry. But the same thing happened, no response. 
The children of, these, of this little parable here represent the people of this generation, meaning the people that are living in this time. And since they represent a negative, again, it would be pointing to the Pharisees and the lawyers and the people who rejected God's plan of salvation, God's purpose, rejected what God was doing. Instead, all they do is they're seeking a reaction. They're hoping someone will respond to something. So they're going through the motions. They're appearing to be something they were not. They're playing a game. They're trying to put on a show. But did you notice? No one was entertained. And I can just hear Russell Crowe right now. Are you not entertained? And God says to us all, no. I'm not entertained when you play a game. I'm not entertained when you go through the motions. It reminds me of a prophecy out of the book of Isaiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fathers. Plead the widow's case. And listen to this promise, verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. The lesson here is that we can all do spiritual things and yet still miss out on what God is doing and what God wants to do. Jesus is highlighting this in verse 34 through 30, or 33 through verse 34. See, when John came, what he's saying is the people were opposed to John. They said he had a demon, which in that day means that he was insane. He didn't act normal. He didn't fit into the social norm. He was a prophet that was not preaching in the city streets of Jerusalem, but he was preaching out in the wilderness, a desolate area, a desert. People had to go to him instead of the, the prophet coming to them. Surely he had lost his mind. He had become possessed. Here's the beauty of that statement, though. If you look into the book of Acts chapter 2, you're going to see that the first believers who received the Holy Spirit, when the world saw them, they thought they were crazy, too, to the point that they thought they were drunk. Because the world should not understand how we live and how we act. They should see something different and look at it like, you're a Christian, aren't you? They should see a change in our life. But Jesus brings this even bigger. He says, here's the ironic thing, verse 34. He refers himself as the son of man, which is taken from the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 17, concerning his eternal reign over all nations and kingdoms. And what he says, he says, look, I came and I lived the exact opposite of John, and people were still upset. John didn't eat bread. I did. John didn't drink wine. I did. And what he's doing, he's pointing to the hypocrisy of this generation. Here were two people living two different types of lifestyles, yet neither was happy with either one of them. 
The statement concerning John and Jesus in verse 33 and 34 could take us back to this children's game of verse 32. Jesus came to call in a celebration, inviting all into the wedding bank, wedding banquet, but some didn't celebrate. John came pronouncing judgment, yet some didn't repent. And so the reason we're asking our question, how did we apply it, is because this is what verse 35 is pointing to. Now, verse 35 is a different set of children than in verse 32. Verse 35, these children aren't playing games to no effect. They're not playing games to no impact. These children are justified. The word is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, and other times in his letters when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified means vindicated. It means to be declared righteous, to be proven righteous, to shown to be right. Here's my favorite definition of it. Just as if I never sinned. The wisdom of the application there in verse 35 is concerning the message of Jesus. We can notice because in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom calls out to the children of man, those who are living in sin, that we would take instruction and we would take knowledge over all worldly possessions so we might fear the Lord and love the Lord. And in doing so, the pro promise of Proverbs chapter 8 is we will find life and we will obtain the favor of God. So the wisdom here of verse 35 are those who have taken the instruction of Jesus and they've applied it to their life. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 11, verse 19, he writes it a little bit differently. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And Matthew and Luke aren't disagreeing about this statement. They're just writing it in a different way. The children of verse 35 are children of wisdom because they're living a life following and doing the works of Christ. They're living and doing the deeds of what a Christian should do. Now, Jesus' use here in verse 35 of justified isn't exactly the same way that Paul uses it in his letters. Paul uses it in relationship to us and God, that God is justified. We are now, by faith in Christ alone, not seen in our sin. Jesus here is using the term justified, saying that now that we are Christians, the world will know we are Christians by how we live, how we act, how we treat people, and what we say. In other words, we are proven to be Christians because we have the mind of Christ. We walk like Christ did. We keep in step with the Spirit so we might bear the fruit of Christ. And when the world sees that we, the way we live, our godly wisdom, they will be able to see that we are children of God. Oh, so you're a Christian, aren't you? And again, some of them may not like it. They didn't like John or Jesus but they should at least recognize it. Which brings us to our third question, our final question. So we deal with how do we apply it? How are we applying the Word of God in our life? Jesus says we are only a wise builder if we hear the Word of God and do it. James says that if we only hear the Word of God and don't do it, then we're deceiving ourselves. How are we applying the Word of God to our life? How are we responding to it? When we go to the Word of God, whether through devotion or through our own private time, what are we expecting to have happen? When we gather here at church, what are our expectations that God's going to do in our life? And here it is, the final question. 
Are we just going through the motions? Are we just playing a game like the children of verse 32? Or are we being transformed and living what God presents to us like the children of verse 35? What child are you? Are you playing or are you participating? That's the big question. And that's why we have to understand the situation. Speaking of children, the Bible reveals there are only one of two types of children on this planet. And some may be here this morning. You're either a child of the darkness, a child of the flesh, a child of Satan, or you're a child of light, a child of the Spirit, and a child of God. In the Bible, God's Word reveals there is only one type of child that will enter into heaven and eternal life. If you're here this morning and you remain a child of darkness, a child of flesh, and a child of Satan, the Bible, God wants you to know you are destining yourself for hell. But here's some good news. God also reveals in his word, for some reason, by his great mercy and by his great love and by his great grace, God wants to adopt children of the darkness to become children of the light, to become his. And this may be where you are here this morning. You need to be adopted by God to become a child of God, and I want to share with you how to do that. It begins by admitting to God, not to me, but admitting to God that you're a sinner. God says that all of us have sinned and fall short of his glory. We all mess up. We all do bad things. We all do things we're not proud about. And so we admit to God, God, I am a sinner. And then we tell God about the goodness that we know, but we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again that we might be forgiven and be given eternal life. And here's the final step. If we admit to God we're a sinner and we believe what Jesus did for our sin, that we might be forgiven, the Bible says we must confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and our need for him. And that word confess, which comes out of Romans chapter 10, means we have to make it publicly known. And so we come to this time of invitation, and it's a time to respond. It's a time to apply, to confess. So Jackson and Bridger are going to come up and lead us. I'm going to be standing right here. If you know that that's you, that you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to talk with you. I guarantee you there's not going to be a person in this room who's not going to celebrate with you. But maybe you're here, and we all can get in that time where we just kind of just go through the motions. And you just can come before the Father and repent. Say, God, forgive me for playing a game and not coming with expectations of what you want to do. I want to pray over us real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. Lord, thank you that you will not leave us where we are. You call us to life and to have life abundantly. You call us to have joy and peace and self-control, Lord, and we can't do that without you. Lord, don't let us be children playing a game. Don't let us be a church playing a game. Lord, let us be a people that are longing and panting for you as the deer pants for water. Lord, be our desire. For you're all that we need. 
Thank you so much for saving us. Thank you so much for calling us your own and making yourself known to us. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, let your spirit grab a hold of their heart. Give them the courage and the boldness to walk down this aisle, to confess you as their Lord and Savior, their need for forgiveness for their sins so they can have eternal life. Lord, let this be the day of their salvation. Father, you know as your children, sometimes we can all get distracted. We can all fail to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we ask for your forgiveness, and we thank you that we have found it in you. For your word says you have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. We thank you for that great act of kindness and mercy. Thank you for being faithful to us even in times we have been unfaithful to you. But Lord, let's be a time where we're not just a hearer of your word, but we are a doer. We respond to what you've laid upon our heart. We praise all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.